Hello, everyone, and welcome to ESAP's Global Economy Podcast. My name is Frederick Erickson, and today we're going to talk about Adam Smith. It's 300 years since Adam Smith was born, and this is a good opportunity to talk about his work and legacy, and especially what in his thoughts that are relevant for us today. For most people, Adam Smith was one of the founding fathers of economics who, in the wealth of nations, deepened the understanding of specialization and the division of labor, central concepts for understanding why some countries grow rich and others stay poor. The book also penetrated the economics of the British Empire and revealed the weakness of mercantilism as a system of economic thought and policy. For a long time now, Adam Smith has rightly been regarded as one of the leading thinkers of free trade. But Smith isn't all about economics. In fact, most of his work isn't about economics at all, at least not what we would call standard economics today. Like many other 18th century intellectuals working in the Newtonian spirit of a whole system of thought, Adam Smith covered many different fields of scholarly work, jurisprudence, virtue, theology, biology, and more. He attempted to deepen the understanding of how man and society develop, and in my own view, he did so in many profound ways. For this conversation, I am joined by two others who share that view of Adam Smith, and who has used his insights and works in original ways, Matt Ridley and Ross Roberts, two inspiring and thought-provoking writers that I strongly recommend everyone to read. Starting with Matt, he's an award-winning zoologist who has authored several books about the evolution of species, the genome, virtue, technology, innovation, progress, the economy of everything. A former science editor for The Economist magazine, Dr. Ridley has a wide readership and audience around the world, and his TED talk about specialization and cooperation, when ideas have sex, has been watched by millions. His latest books include The Rational Optimist and Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Russ Roberts is a fellow of Stanford University's Hoover Institution and the president of Shalem College in Jerusalem. A leading economist with a doctorate from the University of Chicago, Dr. Roberts is the host of one of the oldest and biggest economics podcasts, Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious which he started in 2006 and that releases an episode every week. I recommend all of you to follow it. He has authored several books and released 10 years ago, How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness, which is one of the best books ever on the philosophy of Adam Smith. His latest book is Wild Problems, A Guide to Decisions That Define Us. This is our first conversation in a series of events this year to discuss Adam Smith and his legacy. And it is one that I hope will show you some aspect of Smith you haven't considered in the past. It is a conversation, and I'm not sure where we're going to end up. But I will start with an opening question to Matt and Ross, and then we take it from there. So starting with you, Matt, when ideas have sex, that's the theme and a title of a fascinating TED talk you gave some years ago, tracking the evolution of prosperity and using concepts of developmental biology to explain how ideas and economic behavior mate and, of course, gradually make us more productive. 
the evolutionary approach is also central in your books, most notably the books on biology and evolution, of course, but also in books about the development of ethics, virtue, and prosperity. In The Rational Optimist, you write that prosperity comes from everybody working for everybody else. And at the heart of that profound concept is, of course, specialization. We work for others because we have specialized. What I do is based on what someone else has done before me, and what I've done will also be picked up by someone else after me. This is a concept that I think Smith would have appreciated. And why don't we start there? What would you, Matt, say is the main insight of Adam Smith, his core model of thought that by specialization and cooperation, we find ways to evolve not just prosperity, but perhaps the human species itself. Yes, well, thank you, Frederick, and good afternoon, and uh, great to see you again, Russ. I came quite late to Adam Smith. I was a scientist before I read much economics, and I was gobsmacked when I first got my head around the wealth of nations in particular, because the first part of the book is, is almost anthropology, actually. It's, it's, it's a, a man trying to understand why human beings are unique uh, and what it is about them that's, that's unusual, and making some observations and coming to some insights that really, I think, are startlingly significant. And I, I was stunned to find that nobody had mentioned them to me in my high school education. So the main, the central one for me is this point about specialization and exchange. The observation that if human beings exchange the results of their work with each other, whether those are products or services, uh, then they can specialize in doing the things they're best at. And if everybody specializes in doing the things they're best at, they become much more efficient at doing those things. And as a result, everybody gains. The, the person who's producing the good gains because he can deliver it to other people in exchange for lots of other things that he's not very good at doing. If I'm good at making food and you're good at making tools, Frederick, then the, you'll get better and better at tools, I'll get better and better at food, and we can both work for much less time to supply not just our own needs but each other's needs. So the march away from self-sufficiency is a peculiar human feature that hasn't been experienced by other animals and is the consequence, Smith argues, and I think this is a great insight, of the invention of exchange. And if he has this wonderful phrase, no man ever saw a dog make fair and deliberate exchange of a bone with another dog. So one of the things I did was actually try and track down examples of other animals exchanging things. And it proved to be very hard to do. Yes, they do reciprocity. They do, I scratch your back, you'll scratch mine. But that's not exchanging the sa a different thing at the same time. It's exchanging the same thing at a different time, which there's much less call for, actually. can be useful occasionally, but it doesn't really uh, solve much in the, uh, of our problems. And very occasionally you do find animals exchanging food for sex in the animal kingdom. Birds feed each other food, or, or um, so do praying mantises. Uh, and it, you know, the male comes along and says, "Would you like a nice meal? And can I have sex?" But that's between a mated partner. It's a very specific form of exchange. When by when primatologists tried to teach chimpanzees 
the basic idea of exchanging goods for other goods, they just couldn't get it. But a two-year-old child gets it almost immediately. So there is this very strong tendency to exchange in human beings. That leads to specialization. That leads, as you t say, to us all working for each other, becoming more and more specialized in what we produce and more and more diversified in what we consume. Indeed. And if I largely ask the same question to you, Russ, about what's your sort of main, what do you think Smith's main model of thought is? I mean, you, in your fascinating book uh, a few years ago, the one I mentioned initially, How and Smith Can Change Your Life, you start with, not with the wealth of nations, but with Smith's other book, the much less known Theory of Moral Sentiment, a book that he published uh, about a decade and a half before the wealth of nations. And in that book, you say that Smith helped you to understand why Whitney Houston and Marilyn Monroe were so unhappy and why you have developed an, an affection, love even, for your iPad and iPhone. Many people may associate Smith with selfishness, or at least with self-interest. In a famous passage, she writes that it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, and the baker that we expect our dinner, but from the regard to their own self-interest. So what's the Smithian concept or model that you think can help you to start living a better, better and happier life and a life that is not about simple selfishness? Well, there's, there's a certain irony in Smith's work. He wrote two great books. The first, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, he publishes in 1759, as you said, about a decade and a half before The Wealth of Nations, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the Wealth of Nations, the real formal title. He writes that, he publishes that in 1776. The Wealth of Nations is about how to get wealthy. One of the main themes of the theory of moral sentiments is you don't want to try to get wealthy. So there's a certain tension there between the Adam Smith that wrote the first book and the Adam Smith that wrote the second. And one answer would be, well, he changed his mind. In 1776, he realized, yeah, wealth is good. Let's figure it out. But that is not the case because he revised the uh, theory of moral sentiments six times. I think the last time in 1788, the year before his death. So he wrote, that book was always with him. And so it's the same guy. And it, what the distinction between the two books is, is quite important and quite extraordinary. In the Wealth of Nations, he's talking like a, what we would call a social scientist or an economist, trying to understand the underlying forces it, at the national level. The Theory of Moral Sentiments is a much more, a smaller book. It's maybe a bigger book at the same time, but it's smaller in that it's trying to understand how is it that we interact with each other the way we do? What's the nature of our interaction? I'm self-interested, Smith believes. He does not believe we're inherently benevolent. There's, not, there's benevolent parts to us, but not the biggest part. So why is it that we ever do anything nice for anybody else? And his simple answer is, uh, if I don't do anything nice for other people in my circle of friends and the people around me, they won't respect me. They won't think much of me. They won't admire me. They won't praise me. And if I don't have those things, I'm not going to be happy. He says the chief part of happiness is being beloved. And by beloved, he does not mean a romantic interest. He means respected, admired, praised, and being seen as, as important. He later, he also says, my favorite line from the theory of moral sentiments, man naturally desires not only to be loved, but to be lovely. 
And what he means by that is we are hardwired to desire the respect and admiration of the people around us, and we want to earn that honestly. And that is a shocking summary of the road to happiness. <laughs> but that's really what he tells us. He says, you want to feel, you want to have dignity. You want people around you to respect you and don't miss that. Then he says something even more profound. He says, there's two ways to be admired, respected, praised, and where people pay attention to. The first way he calls the glittering path, fame, wealth, and power. And there's no doubt that famous, wealthy, powerful people get a lot of attention and they're beloved. People think the world of them. They want to know what they're eating. They want to know what they're wearing. They want to know what they're thinking. That's the world of rock stars. That's the world of politicians. That's the world of business uh, entrepreneurs and, and successful people in the world of business. But here's the strange thing. He doesn't say you should pursue that world. In fact, he says, if you pursue it, you're probably not going to be so happy because you will find that after you acquire all that money, you're not going to be that much happier than you were before. And you'll have done a bunch of things that you'll regret. The better path, he says, is wisdom and virtue. So this is a, an insane 1759 document that says, remember, long before the, the, the explosion of the full Industrial Revolution, but at the beginnings of it, uh, don't try so hard to be wealthy. You're going to be uh, happier if you try to become wise and virtuous. And pay attention to your friendships. And be aware that other people want to earn your respect, just like you want to earn theirs. And these insights and the way he writes about them with such depth and thoughtfulness and an amazing writer, an amazing psychologist, anthropologist, as Matt says, he, he's really the beginning of, of modern social science. He's trying to understand how the world works and how we work. And his simple answer to how we work is we need to feel appreciated by the people around us. And I'll just say one more lesson from that, which I think is incredible. Choose your friends carefully. Choose the circle of people you spend time with because they will be the people whose admiration you crave. And you should give that some thought. And I think that's a very, very helpful thing to think of in life. And in that book, Russ, he, he comes up with a concept called the impartial spectator, which is uh, sort of a concept which has been subject to a lot of different discussion uh, ever since then about what it actually means. But something I take from the theory of moral sentiments is that Smith doesn't really advocate that you you should behave virtuously in order to gain something. It's it's something else that should lead you to live sort of a a, a, a life with different type of intentions and sentiments. So it's not a transactional thing. It's something more profound which is is advocating. So what what is that impartial spectator that it? So, yeah, just to be clear, when I say that he recognizes how much we crave and desire the respect of the people around us, he's not telling us to go around and suck up to other people and try to impress them. And he, he's very, um, it's a very nuanced idea of what a, a meaningful life or a life of, of, of happiness in the fullest sense means. I, I would just mention that his circle of friends was quite small. He never married. He lived with his mom at the end of his life. And his best friend was David Hume. Pretty good quality person. Uh, I, I recommend everyone go read the letter that Smith wrote to uh, Hume's publisher when Hume passed away. It's uh, We should all be so lucky to have Adam Smith write a eulogy for us that fits that 
eloquent. Uh, but the idea of the impartial spectator is a beautiful idea, and it's very helpful if you use it as a tool for self-improvement. Smith wasn't writing a self-help book. He's trying to understand how we actually behave. But along the way, there are lessons to be learned, so it's just, it's a powerful book. But his idea was that we have, he calls them, sometimes he calls it the man within the breast, meaning our internal conscience, not necessarily what we're taught by the church or our parents or our culture, but the idea that, that there's someone watching, and then we act as if someone is watching us. And of course, sometimes someone is. Someone is paying attention. He, he gives a fabulous example at the beginning of the book. He says, suppose an earthquake comes to China and kills uh, millions of people. How are you going to feel? Oh, you're going to be sad. You're going to feel bad about it. He said you might, or you went to go to bed, you might tell your spouse, oh, you see that horrible thing, earthquake in China. Yeah. He said, then you'll sleep like a baby. And this is true. <laughs> Tragedies that happen far away to people we don't know well, or we don't take them to heart. We might feel a moment of, of sadness or tragedy, but we don't take them to heart. He says then, but if you knew tomorrow you're going to lose your little finger in a surgery that was told by your doctor that your doctor told you that you need to have surgery to remove your little finger, you're not going to sleep that night. And he says, how do you understand this? How is it possible that you care more about your little finger than, than millions of people dying far away? And he says, because you're self-interested, you're self-centered. But then he says that everyone quotes that, but then they forget the next part, which is the deep part. He says, but if that's true, if you really care more emotionally about your little finger than a million strangers dying, if someone offered you the opportunity to save your little finger by killing a few million people, would you do it? And he says, of course you would, and that's horrifying, it's disgusting. But then, but why not? You've admitted that your natural emotional reaction is stronger for your self-interested finger than the million strangers, but you still won't do it. And he says, why? And one of his answers, of course, is, well, how would people, what would people think of a person like that? And of course, more deeply, what would you think of yourself? And so what he's suggesting is that we're facing moral dilemmas, personal decisions of various kinds of our interactions, someone who needs us to visit them in the hospital, someone who needs us to run an errand for them, someone who's lonely and wants us to spend some time with them. How do we react to that when our self-interest says, oh, just tell them you're busy. And so it's saying, we act as if there's an impartial spectator. Of course, our own, ourselves, we go, oh, I don't really don't like that person. Maybe it's that much. I'll just go, I'll stay home and watch the football game. So I was saying, but you wouldn't be able to do that because you often, not always, but often, you would struggle to be self-interested because so often you know how a person would react to her that, what? You're not to go visit that person in the hospital? And so he's saying you internalize that as an impartial person, an outsider who's not looking out for you, who doesn't, you know, we tell ourselves all kinds of stories about, oh, well, I couldn't, I had to have this deadline at work and I couldn't do the right thing. But the impartial spectator, now doesn't lie to himself. Yeah, the impartial spectator says, whoa, 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 whoa. And so he's saying often, not always, but often we invoke that observer. And it's a beautiful idea that we can choose to invoke on our own if we want to do what we think of as the right thing at, at, in times when that's hard to do. Indeed. And can, can I take this concept to you, Matt? I mean, what I find fascinating with this theme itself is that Adam Smith, I mean, he he writes after the 
sort of Newtonian shift in our thinking about society. So it's um, after the Renaissance, um, you can begin to explore different con- concepts that isn't really anchored in theology, in sort of church thinking. But he also comes before Charles Darwin, and if I'm if I have my years right, I think he, the theory of moral sentiments comes uh, exactly a hundred years before Darwin publishes his magnum opus. And but it seems to me that there is something in Smith's thinking which is evolutionary in its orientation, and also goes into virtue and our practice here. So this balance between, on the one hand, self-interest and, on the other hand, non-selfish type of motivations in how we interact in society as men, how would you, how would you sort of look at that with your knowledge and experience also from, from zoology and from thinking about the evolution of virtue? I am very intrigued by the, that coincidence of dates you mentioned, the theory of moral sentiment 1759, the origin of species in 1859, because I think Darwin did draw directly from Smith and built on Smith, and in particular, they are in some sense saying the same thing, albeit in different spheres, one in moral philosophy, one in biology. They are saying this is a bottom-up world, not a top-down world. They are saying that things emerge from the interactions of individuals rather than being dictated by intelligent design from above. And in that sense, I coined the phrase in my book, The Evolution of Everything, uh, that whereas Darwin produced the special theory of evolution, Smith produced the general theory of evolution uh, a century before. Uh, I actually, uh, Richard Webb gave me that uh, coinage. I should should credit him for, for that. But uh, it's it, it, there really is a sense in which Smith is saying in a shocking way for the 18th century no it's not you're, you don't behave well because the priest told you to behave well you behave well because you have worked out that it's the right thing to do in your society in order to help your own reputation but also in order to satisfy the impartial spectator as, as, as Russ uh, pointed out uh, and that is a pretty revolutionary, pretty atheistic thing to be saying in 1759. And indeed, Smith got into trouble for being suspected of atheistic tendencies and had to row back a little bit from that. And one of the reasons he did or didn't become um, David Hume's literary executor, I think he didn't, was because he was nervous about the uh, implications of uh, publishing Hume's very atheistic, posthumous um, uh, writings. Uh, by the way, uh, I was once having a drink with Neil Ferguson in Edinburgh, and uh, we both realised we were hungry, and Neil said, let's go and find something to eat. And then he said, the question now is not what Adam, what would Adam Smith do, because he'd go home to his mum. The question is, what would David Hume do? Because he would find some very good food and some very good wine quite quickly. So just back to this evolutionary aspect of... Oh, sorry, yes, what I was going to add was I looked quite hard into what Darwin did take from Smith directly. And he has a a note in, I think it's a letter, might be a journal, 
from his time at Cambridge saying my studies consist in Adam Smith and Locke. Now, which Adam Smith was he talking about? Those in the know tell me that in 1820-something in Cambridge, you'd be more likely to be reading the, uh, or be taught the moral sentiments than the wealth of nations. It was more in fashion in those days. So I do suspect that that book had a significant influence. And Darwin moved in a circle of somewhat libertarian political economists who were friends of his uh, parents and uncles, the, the Wedgwood family, that really, and people like Harriet Martineau, who became a friend of his, etc., were, were passionate exponents of the, the, the political economy that Smith and later people like David Ricardo were expounding. And so I think there's a, an influence on Darwin here from within the the Smith tradition that is sometimes overlooked. Can I add to that? Yes, absolutely. I was going to take it. I want to. It's beautifully said. I want to take us in a different direction from your original point. Jumping off from a different point you made, Frederick Smith is born as as we're discussing in 1723. Newton. Isaac Newton dies in 1727. So Smith, they never met as far as you know. And if they did, uh, Smith probably didn't have much to say, but he was four. But the point I think that's important, and I, I got this insight from Vernon Smith, uh, no relation to Adam, but a Nobel laureate, wonderful thinker and, and writer on Smith and many, many other things. I think it's hard to underestimate how electrifying Newton was to the intellectual world. Smith was a similar, you could think, I don't, I don't want to compare them in any literal way, but if you think about these three giants, Newton, Smith, and Darwin, uh, and think about how they influenced each other, uh, at first glance, I mean, what, what kind of influence could Newton have on Adam Smith? But I think there was a profound influence, and that profound influence is that Newton understood the harmony of the universe, the fact that the planets and the sun and the earth did a dance together, that that was held together not by God directly, although he was certainly, a, he was a believer and, and was open to the possibility that God put this in the world. And Smith writes in a similar fashion, even though he doesn't want to have the top-down uh, approach that just as, as Matt has said. But, but Darwin discovers this hidden force. It's called gravity. That's a shocking idea. I mean, we we can't really grasp what it was like to be in a world where someone posited something you can't see, feel, or measure directly as holding the universe together. And I think that electrified Smith in the following way. And this is the way I see the two books of Smith tied together. Both of the books... The Wealth of Nations and the Theory of Moral Sentiments are about sentiments are about harmony. The Wealth of Nations, the harmony there is the fact that we can trade with each other. We have a, through this process of trade, we get the process of specialization that Matt referred to that creates the possibility for wealth beyond a subsistence level. And again, we're right at the beginning of that, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. It's an incredible moment in human history that happens to be centered right around where Smith is physically, 
in the United Kingdom. So what's driving that crazy ability to link people together and nations together? And it's this, what, what Matt referred to as the, uh, what Smith called the human propensity to truck, barter, and exchange. So the fact that I do make deals with people, we do swap things, that unleashes, along with competition, which is the part that Darwin got really kind of obsessed with, obviously, that process of this inner desire to improve ourselves, improve myself through exchange, unleashes through no one's intention this extraordinary world of what was now modernity. The fact that we trade with a billion, more than a billion, billions of people. That's what unleashes the productivity and the standard of living that we, that many, a shocking number enjoy. Still many don't, but a shocking number do enjoy and at a level unimaginable even a hundred years ago. That's the wealth of nations. How does that come about? The theory of moral sentiments is, how is it that I don't talk all the time? Why do I let Matt talk? I mean, I like hearing my own voice more than I like Matt. I mean, I love Matt, but come on. Enough about me. Let's hear about what you think of me, right? That's the human impulse. How do we put that down? How is it that I go and visit you in the hospital? How is it that I'm nice to you? How is it that I have a circle of friends who I do things for without keeping score? And what Smith's answer was is there's a hidden harmony holding that together. And that hidden harmony is the hidden force is my desire to earn the respect of the people around me and my own self-respect. And he literally says, the author of nature, meaning God, deputizes us on earth to do the right thing because we want the approval of others and because we don't want their disapproval, the raised eyebrow or the shunning or the canceling, which is of course a very modern version of this. So what Smith's doing, he's taking the Newtonian system of heavenly harmony, bringing it down on earth, explaining why we treat each other well in small, intimate exchange, socially, and then in material, economic exchange at a larger level with strangers. And that whole economic system is driven by our propensity to truck barter and exchange with competition. The first one's driven by our desire to earn respect from each other. And that creates a pretty pleasant world that I call civilization. He doesn't call it that, but if you try to understand why we're civilized, why we can treat each other with any modicum of respect, kindness, justice, and so on, I think Smith's got one of the better explanations and I think it's, um, it's pretty extraordinary. Can I jump in there too? Just to put another link in that historical chain that Russ mentioned from Newton to Smith to Darwin, and that is that when Newton died in 1727, Voltaire was in London at the time, and he attended Newton's funeral, and he was blown away by the respect that this nation had for Newton, and contrasted it with what a philosopher's funeral would attract in Paris at the time, he thought. That's probably unfair because actually for most of the rest of the 18th century, France develops a much more interesting enlightenment than, than, than England does. Certainly Scotland is a later an interesting question, but, but England uh, lags behind France in terms of the enlightenment. And it's people like Voltaire who are very much pushing 
the margin on this and improving the idea. And then, to complete the link, in the autumn of 1765, Smith meets Voltaire. He was the tutor to the young Duke of Buccleuch, and he travelled with him on the Grand Tour and went to Geneva, was it, where, where Voltaire was leaving, living at the time, and they, I think, had lunch together. And boy, would I like to be a fly on the wall at that meeting. That would be quite something. Uh, just a postscript to that, I, I once had an argument with the, the father of the current Duke of Buccleuch, previous Duke of Buccleuch, about forestry, uh, and he was saying, no, no, we have to plant a lot of trees in this country. We can't rely on imports. And I said, well, I don't know. If imports are cheaper. We might as well import timber. You know, they're buying grain. We're not good at it. That's what Adam Smith said. And he replied, Adam Smith was my ancestor's tutor. So shut you up. But just back to the... Yeah, uh, those that can't do teach, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the the hidden harmony theme that Russ mentioned is is very good. But I'd add another word, which is emergent hidden harmony or emergent harmony. Because what Newton is saying is the planets don't have to be pushed round in circles or ellipses by God. They are doing so under their own motions. You don't need anything other than a law of gravity to explain the motions of the planets. And Smith is saying you don't need anything other than an understanding of human relations to each other to discover where morality comes from and Darwin is saying you don't need anything other than competition and variation uh, and selection to understand where the order and complexity of uh, nature is coming from so there it is the same theme but with this sort of bottom up feel to it and when Smith is, um, I mean, if we, if we go to the Wealth of Nations, when he's uh, taking that harmony approach to the economy and sort of talks about specialization, divisional labor, the invisible hand, and how spontaneous, emergent, bottom-up collaborations will, will sort of gradually form patterns of, of change and development, what I find fascinating is that he writes, well, we can say it's on the eve of the Industrial Revolution. I mean, it's changes in, in, in technology, machinery has begun. But, of course, we are very, very far away from uh, the type of acceleration that we see in industrialization, early 19th century onwards. But it still comes to the concept of specialization. And today... It's probably not very difficult to understand the concepts of specialization. It's just to look around what we're doing in our everyday, everyday life and we sort of immediately, perhaps not everyone, perhaps not many people even, immediately realizes that we are crucially dependent on ideas, work, inputs, thoughts, whatever from other people. But, but back then, when a substantial part of the population was working in agriculture, you had self-sufficiency. So where does this, um, where, where does it get sort of that idea of specialization from? I mean, is it from historical patterns that he sees been evolving over previous centuries, perhaps even long, longer than that? Where does this notion of specialization comes from? I mean, is it something evolutionary there he draws on as well? Russ can probably answer that better than I can, but he's spending a lot of time in Glasgow and 
Glasgow is the world's leading uh, trading city at the time. It's, it's an incredibly fast-growing city based around the tobacco trade to a large extent. So he's seeing the importance of trade from, from that first hand. Now, at some point, he visits a pin factory. And I can't remember if anyone's pinned down, as it were, the factory that he, that he visited. Uh, but I suspect somebody does know exactly where he got that very important analogy and metaphor from. And, and he recounts this, you know, he recounts little things like, uh, you know, the boy whose job it was to open and close not a valve, but a door on a machine somewhere at regular intervals, and who to improve his life had rigged up a simple way of doing this automatically, I think. Or, or with, with string, I think. With string, yeah, there's a string involved, isn't there? Yeah. And, you know, so, so he clearly is witnessing early industrialization somewhere in southern Scotland, I guess. He certainly doesn't see it in Oxford when he spends time there, which is you know, not taking part in the Industrial Revolution at all. And I think, you know, there one has to reflect on whether or not the, the textile industry of southern Scotland, based around water mills largely, I suspect, along the River Tweed and so on, was actually quite a pioneer of mechanisation at the time. And, you know, he's luck he is lucky to be around the, the beginnings of the Scottish Enlightenment, which, as I say, took on the French enlightenment and redoubled its efforts people like hutchison and and um adam ferguson and other you know there is an extraordinary flowering of open-minded thinking in and around edinburgh in in the mid to late 18th century which he he was very much part of but it's not fully understood why that happened there in rather a backward part of a rather backward country on the edge of europe yeah the only thing i would add to that Factories were a new thing. It's hard to remember. It was a breakthrough. Contrast that with an artisan. An artisan is a craftsman, a craftsperson who is diligently applying a set of skills to make a horseshoe or a piece of wood that would do something. And I don't, I don't think we know, Matt, is a great question. I don't know if we know whether Smith ever visited a pen factory, and it's even possible he didn't really have any real understanding of what it would actually do. I'm not sure that his stylized description is literally accurate for his time of how pins were made. But he imagines someone stretching out the wire, cutting the wire, putting, sharpening one end, and so on. And you know, he really was, in many ways, the greatest armchair theorist of all time. He, he he was not he was that out in the field doing a lot of case studies. He, I think he talked to his friends. He had really smart friends, and that helped. He also read a lot, and other people. These ideas were in the air, but I think his insight into specialization in the pin factory. And I'm going to add one piece to it we haven't talked about yet. He has a um, a line that's quite profound, and I would argue is not fully appreciated today in the economics profession. He says, the division of labor is limited by the extent of the market. And what he means by that is, if the market for pins is such that you're only gonna make a few hundred a year, it's not worth it to bring a lot of technology into the process, even in his age. There was technology, there's the hammer and there's other tools. But he's basically saying, 
because that's the other part. It's not just that you get better at the skills when you specialize. It becomes effective to apply machinery to it. And so the part about being on the eve of the Industrial Revolution that's important is that he was already seeing or reading about or talking with people about the application of machinery. And that's a new world. If you think about the world of, of 1500 or 1400, and many people have pointed this out, there's not much change between the Romans and 1700. Most people, as you say, Frederick, are working in agriculture. They're mostly self-sufficient. The biggest tech piece of technology they have is an animal combined with a piece of metal, some kind of plow-like instrument. That's it. So the idea that you could do more to aid the skill of your hands is an enormous change in human experience, and it's new. And his deepest insight in many ways, we haven't really talked about it yet, but it's so profound is that if you're going to make a lot of something, you could do it wisely with machinery and what we call capital. If you're only making a few things, and of course, most of human history, you're only making a few things because you're only trading with the, your neighbors. I mean, how many pins could be useful to make? How many shirts could it be useful to make? Whereas in a modern factory, and I've been in a couple because it's so extraordinary, a modern pencil factory would make a billion pencils, might make a billion pencils a year. A canning factory, a place that, that bottles soda, is going to bottle a billion cans a year. Obviously, it's going to be very mechanized. If I said to you, go make me a can, maybe in 20 or 30 years, you'd come back with one. Maybe. But the smartest, most skilled, the most clever person in the world is never going to be able to make a billion in a year. But a person working with machinery can effectively make a billion. You know, the modern factory has, has two employees, a a person and a dog. The person's job is to feed the dog, and the dog's job is to make sure the person doesn't touch the equipment. That's a modern specialization, and it's only profitable when you're making a lot. So that in, the, the real question is for me isn't how do you figure out specialization? It's that how did he understand? How did he come to the vision in his armchair? because he didn't visit a thousand factories of different sizes. How did he come to realize this subtle connection? And it is deep. We totally take it for granted. We understand you can't make your own car. You can't make your own pencil even. You can't even make your own pen, let alone a can of soda that uses the tiny amount of aluminum that a modern can does, which is an engineering miracle that we don't appreciate, right? You take a can, a can of soda today, you can press it together with two fingers, Take one finger and press, press it down and dent it. When I was a boy in, in, the, in the 1960s, the cans were so thick you couldn't crush them. unless It was a sign of strength. You'd show off by showing you could push a can in. Anybody, a five-year-old can push a can in today. And that's because they figured out ways to make cans with less aluminum. And they were able to do that because they figured out ways to engineer the top of the can so it wouldn't collapse, even though the thin walls have so little aluminum in them. How that come? Where'd that come from? Well, that's because you make a billion a year. <laughs> it's a genius insight. So he, at the beginning of the process, understood the essence of it. That's his mm. gift. What a gift. Can I add something to that? I, I was very 
uh, impressed by a book I read really quite a lot, a lot of years ago by David Walsh called Knowledge and the Wealth of Nations, mm. because what that did was trace the history of economics through the apparent contradiction between two of Smith's ideas and the way in which his successors dealt with them. One was the pin factory and the other was the invisible hat. And uh, there is a superficial contradiction there. The pin factory is talking about increasing returns. The more you do something, the better you get at it, the more you can do it. Whereas the invisible hand talking about finding an equilibrium in a market, distributing things as evenly as, as you can, implicitly says you'll reach an equilibrium, that there will be diminishing returns, that you will eventually find the best way of distributing things among people and it, it, um, it all evens out. And a lot of his successors in the field of economics, as I understand it, spent a lot of time talking about equilibriums and kind of missed out on the importance of increasing returns. I mean, the idea that actually you keep busting the equilibrium, you keep finding a new equilibrium to move towards um, through technology, through innovation, through knowledge, essentially. That's why a lot of the 19th century economists, from David Ricardo to John Stuart Mill and, and others, they realize that they're living in a world of spectacular exponential change. They think there's, yeah, okay, there's a burst of invention, but we're soon going to hit diminishing returns. We're soon going to hit the limits to growth of some kind. Growth is going to slow down. Keynes says it in the 20th century. And yet it never happens. You know, we just keep finding new ways of innovating that, as uh, Russ says, take you to a whole new level of discovery about how efficient you can be in, in supplying people's needs. I'll, I'll just go into the weeds for a second for the economists in the room. Economists starting around 1950 become, 1948 with Paul Samuelson become much more mathematical. And that's kind of cool. Uh, makes them look more like physicists, but it means they can't write equations for some things that are really important because they're not easily quantified mathematically. And, or a related point is that, of course, the measurement revolution that's been the nature of the last 25 years in economics, the relentless application of statistical data to all kinds of things. Of course, we can't measure everything. So that limits to what we pay attention to, which I think is another shortcoming, shortcoming revealed. But a lot of the greatest ideas in economics and the most interesting ideas are not easily quantified mathematically. And one of those would be creative destruction, which is in the background of what you're talking about, Matt, in, in terms of equilibrium and, and stasis versus dynamism. Schumpeter comes along and writes really eloquently about the essence of capitalism is its dynamism and the constant churn of innovation, firms dying, new firms rising. And that doesn't, that gets neglected in, in our field because it's not easily uh, mathematicized, and that's a tragedy. Right. And um, Paul, Paul Roma eventually comes in and seeks to solve this problem, but doesn't fully solve it. He makes it respectable, yes. uh, but he doesn't get, it, it doesn't transform the field the way it might have. And I, I believe that's partly because of the focus on the, 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 the demands that the profession has for mathematical rigor as opposed to intellectual rigor. And that's a shame. Agreed. 
may I uh, just sort of on on the basis of this conversation do one, one observation about Smith and then uh, take that as a question to you both about um, his relevance today as we ponder technological change and the type of uh, development that new technology is bringing. So one thing I find striking about Smith is uh, and this concept about specialization is that he he seems to extend it to the world of knowledge. And he seems to be, perhaps he, he does it explicitly, I can't remember exactly now, but he, he certainly writes and also in quite eloquent way about the divisibility of knowledge. And of course, this is a pretty profound concept at that time, when sort of a lot of people, a lot of things is still going back to the ancient, still harbor a concept about knowledge as something which is indivisible. You know, it's the old Socratic idea of knowledge that it's 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 cohesive, and you, if you if you begin to use technologies, even uh, innocent technologies like a pencil or an alphabet, you're going to destroy that manifest compounded nature. And here comes Smith and says, "Well, it's not just that you may be more economically rewarded if you also begin to specialize your own knowledge. You." may also start to behave in ways which is much more sort of in 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 sync with this whole notion about a civilization because you create a method of cooperation between individuals if i if i become good at something and you become a good something we do need to collaborate and that i i do find pretty striking and pretty new in in smith and of course this comes before the 19th century with the emergence of science, the emergence of universities as in a sort of proper mass scale variants. And of course, it comes before we have the machinery factory system, which comes in, which of course makes that form of knowledge specialization also much more exact, accelerated, much more accentuated than, than we saw in the 18th century. So on, on the back of that, we now possibly entering a period of fast technological change again. Artificial intelligence is certainly something which has been, if not credited, so at least people speculate that it's going to change, if not human nature, so at least the way we interact with knowledge and how we how we specialize in terms of knowledge. I mean, I don't know what, what technology is going to bring, but the question I wanted to ask both of you sort of in, in that Smithian spirit about the visibility of knowledge. Where are we going here? I mean, is it has it been a linear development ever since then that we need to specialize more and more in knowledge? We should be sort of more narrowing in on particular fields, or uh, are we going to move in in another direction where there is maybe some degree of economic specialization but in terms of what type of books we read and how we spend our our leisure. Is, is going to move much more towards sort of a, an idea when knowledge is sort of more tightly knit than perhaps the uh, profits of at artificial intelligence and others would like us to. Ross, do you want to start? So it's important to point out that, again, even in 1776, Smith understood that specialization in the pin factory might be very dreary. He, he would have understood modern times, Charlie Chaplin's film that critiques the industrial process. So I, I think that's important to say. In the modern world, 
you know, you're not just a doctor, you're not just an oncologist, you're a pediatric oncologist. In fact, you might be a pediatric oncologist who specializes in one type of cancer. And that level of specialization is really extraordinary and important for the human enterprise because the level of understanding that, that is able to be achieved through that kind of specialization is life-saving and, and life-enhancing. So the irony of your question is you're talking to two people who I would, I don't want to insult Matt, but I'm not a specialist. Uh, you know, Matt's books, they're not all over the place, but he, he writes about different things. He, he's not, he didn't go deep, he didn't go deeper and deeper into biology. He decided zoology, went into other things. And we both know lots of polymaths, uh, people who are even more, um, certainly more impressive than I am in, in the breadth of their knowledge. But I find that fascinating that the modern economy does make room still. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, Matt might be a Renaissance man, I'm not, but uh, it does allow for a person who has a wide array of interests and we live in a glorious world where information is incredibly available if I want to educate myself. I don't know what the future holds, obviously. It's, um, you know, Matt said the, the Industrial Revolution had, hadn't come to Oxford for Smith. I'm not sure it's come to Oxford yet, except that I bet they have ChatGPT. It's a very old-fashioned place, right? It doesn't use a lot of technology. And we're right at the cusp right now of a different revolution with the potential of artificial intelligence to be both uh, instructors for us and technology that can help us be more productive. At the same time, there are genuine worries that will diminish our humanity in all kinds of ways, as well as our ability to think, because a lot of writing, in my view, is thinking. And if I have a tool that lets me write for me without the struggle of that, I maybe become less of an, a less effective thinker. So it's a fascinating time, almost as fascinating as 1776, but it's hard to know what's coming. My answer to, to Russ's question of how people like him and me exist in a world of increasing specialization is that we are specialists in generalization. Uh, in other words, that once the world gets very, very specialized, that there's enough room, there's a, you know, it's a big enough economy to support some people who do that, who specialize in the generalization to help other people see what's going on in other fields or whatever. Now, I mean, we're pretty specialist generalists anyway, if you like, you know, they're, they're, they're a, a, a newsreader is a way more generalized person than, than even than us. So it, it, there are layers of special, there are horizontal as well as vertical specializations, I guess one could say. You know, we're specialized in uh, writing books and articles and knowing how to reach audiences, I guess, in a way that quite a lot of people just, you know, wouldn't, we don't realize how specialized we are, is, is what I'm saying. Sure. Yeah. Um, the, but, but back to your question, Frederick, um, in in the time since Adam Smith, there have been periods when the world has retreated towards self-sufficiency and away from specialization in economic terms, particularly the 1920s, 1930s, I would say, you know, when not only did, as it were, Japan say, well, if you're not going to sell me rubber and oil, I'll go and grab it, you know, so there is that mercantilist motive behind the, the the rush to war but also on a more individual level the accounts of people in in the united states during the great depression 
going back to rearing chickens and growing vegetables in their backyard are, are really quite striking in the sense of uh, autarky, self-sufficiency re-emerging. Is there something similar in the world of knowledge and the divisibility of knowledge? Is there a other periods when, for geopolitical reasons, people be- went went a little bit less specialized in their in their knowledge? I mean, is that something that war does, perhaps? You know, or are people in the Soviet Union having to be more polymathic or something like that? I don't think I know an answer to that question, but it's, it would be an interesting one. As for the future, if AI is as important as we all seem to think at the moment, and I have my doubts, I, I think it might just be, you know, like GPS, another useful thing that's hanging around and automating and, and making redundant people like Russ and me, because it can write books in our style without our intervention. <laughs> um, uh, but if if it is that important, then the question becomes, and I think you were you were hinting at this, Frederick. How do we exchange with machines? You know, w- what is the pattern of division of labour that we develop with ChatGPT? Already, we're hearing all sorts of stories about people who have worked out which parts of their software development careers or their script writing careers or whatever it is they've got they can outsource to GPT as opposed to having to reinvent or, or, or laboriously do themselves in much the same way that factory workers have learned how to develop a, an exchanging relationship with, with machines in previous generations. So I think that is the question. Is, is it as easy to truck barter and exchange with AIs as it is with human beings? Or do we worry the fact they haven't got that built into them? And, and I do, by the way, constantly have to remind people in the field of AI or related fields that human intelligence is a collective phenomenon, not an individual phenomenon. You know, the, 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 the knowledge of how to make a pencil doesn't exist inside my head or Russ's head or anybody else's head. It exists between and among our heads. Yes. Of course, Leonard Reed's wonderful essay reminding us. Um, uh, and I'm not sure, you know, therefore the real AI at the moment is the internet rather than any particular machine. I don't think most of the people who are talking about this get that point uh, and have derived that point from, if you like, Adam Smith. Well said. All right. That's indeed a very, very well said. We are already past the end time for our conversation. It's been fascinating i'd like to continue for another hour but i'm afraid we need to stop here um i think it's been also a very very good conversation in order to highlight some of the major themes of adam smith's and and also even if we just spent a little time now towards the end thinking about today in the future the stuff that we covered previously as well i think it has huge relevance for not just understanding the society and how it, how it evolves, but also the things that uh, Ross went into to talk about, about um, how to be happy and how to live a meaningful life. I'd like to thank you very much, Matt and Ross, for a wonderful conversation. Thanks for taking the time, and also thanks you to uh, all of you who have been watching us on different platforms. Uh, after the summer recess, we're going to return to the concept of Anna Smith, and hopefully we'll see you again then. Thank you very much.